I'm also going to have to take issue with the fact that you included 30s in your characterization of older people. I'm 42. So I'm watching my I people. T- Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I turn 40 tomorrow. Oh, happy oh my birthday. God. Wait, my God. Happy birthday. That, yeah. Thank you. I like I have never ever been hung up about age or anything like that, but 40 feels big. 40 is sort of a big one. It's a big one. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. This is the week that Democrats in Washington say they'll come to an agreement on a multi-trillion dollar economic and social programs bill known as the Build Back Better Act and possibly pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill. It is the potential culmination of months of debate within the Democratic Party and could clarify what parts of Biden's economic agenda are likely to become law during the current Congress. There are still lots of moving parts, so nothing is certain yet, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said over the weekend that Democrats are, quote, pretty much there now on a deal, and President Biden shared some of the details of a potential agreement in a town hall late last week. Today, we're going to check in on those details and play a game that will help us get a sense of how popular different provisions in the Build Back Better plan are. We're also going to check in on the governor's race in Virginia and New Jersey, where there is just one week until Election Day. Here with me to do all of that, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, Galen. And Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. Welcome back to the podcast, Tia. Thank you for having me back on. Always great to have you. So next Tuesday is Election Day in Virginia and New Jersey for governor and state lawmakers. And these are the only regularly scheduled statewide elections on off years like this year. So they serve as a high profile test of the current political environment. In the Virginia governor's race, Democrat Terry McAuliffe leads Republican Glenn Youngkin by two points in 538's polling average. In New Jersey, there hasn't been enough polling to get a reliable average in the governor's race, but a high-quality public poll last week suggested a close contest. So we will get to that polling, but let's begin with Virginia. The governor's race there has tightened by a point since we talked about it last week. Two points now, I mentioned. At what point should we consider this a toss-up? Is it a toss-up now? I think it's a toss-up. And I also think that Virginia is one of those states that we continue to look at to see if they've truly gone completely blue or they can still go either way. So to me, like all the polling we're seeing and in the polling of polls that 538 is using to track everything shows that like it really, I think either candidate can win. No, I, I think Tia's right. The one thing I kind of would push back on and something we had talked about last week is this idea that the race has like really tightened. Like you're right that, you know, from the last time we talked to now, it's about a point. But by the same token, like if you kind of scroll back since we've been collecting poll, polls since August, it's hovered between that two to three point range, um, which suggests though, to be clear that it is a close race. I just am kind of trying to parse out at this stage how much of it is really tightening here at the end versus it's just been competitive here for quite a while. And still, though, I think, you know, as Tia's getting at, too, with Virginia in particular, it is a state that has trended more blue, but it also is kind of purplish still. And so I think that's why all eyes are on Virginia right now, Um, because if Youngkin did win, you know, it would be the first time that Republicans have won a statewide office um, in like three or four elections. So that would be sizable that that had happened. 
Yeah, I would go with toss up too. I mean, if you just had like a couple words to describe the race, I think we're in toss up territory. Now, 538, we obviously care a lot about the granularity here. So I think if, if we had a forecast of this race, for example, let's say McAuliffe was a 60-40 favorite, 60% to 40% chance of winning, right? Or let's say he was a 55-45% favorite. We care about those differences. And so in that sense, if you just label the race a toss-up, then I think you lose a little bit of information, right? You lose the information that McAuliffe does have a consistent but very small lead in the polls. But that kind of really small edge, just in terms of probabilities, we talked about this before, it's just hard to communicate. And so I think as like a shorthand, toss-up is really your your best bet as, as a shorthand right now. Virginia has its parts that are, you know, Northern Virginia, which is considered more liberal, more democratic leaning. But then you talk about other parts of Virginia, like Western Virginia, um, you would consider much more conservative areas of the state. But just the state has a lot of diversity, those rural areas, those smaller towns that aren't so metropolitan. And that's what makes up a swing state. That's what makes up a swing electorate. And then on top of that, you see that Youngkin isn't just sticking to those conservative areas of Virginia. He is, you know, campaigning around the state and campaigning in more Democratic cities. And I think that also shows that he thinks that he can pick off voters that may, you know, vote one way in a presidential election, but have different values or different things that they consider when they're voting for a governor. And I'm really curious about turnout. You know, we saw in the 2020 presidential election record high turnout. The Georgia Senate runoffs had high turnout. The California governor's recall election had high turnout. And right now in the polling that we have, there does seem to be, you know, an enthusiasm gap between um, people who would support McAuliffe versus people who support Youngkin, with Youngkin having an edge there. It's about a five-point edge, roughly. However, you know, as we often say at 538, you know, a person who is unenthusiastic can vote just as easily as someone who is. And that had been a concern going into the California recall election that just wasn't borne out. There was huge voter turnout. Um, More than 50% of California's 26 million eligible voters cast a ballot. I'm curious what happens here in Virginia and to what extent then it is either Trump motivating people to vote. Um, That was something that came out of, again, the California election. I think even going back to the 2018 midterms, you know, Democrats cite a lot of like, oh, it was healthcare that won. Was it or was it Trump being on the ballot. And of course, Trump isn't on the ballot this year, but he's still so much in the news environment and how we cover politics. And in Virginia in particular, I think it's an interesting dynamic there in the sense that it motivates core elements of the Republican base. But overall, he's very unpopular in the state. And so Yunkin has had to kind of tread that ground lightly in terms of how much to kind of lean into Trump. I think that dynamic is so interesting that Yunkin is working to align with Trump enough so that he doesn't turn off the base, but divert from Trump enough so that he can still appeal to a wider electorate in a general election. And I think a lot of Republicans who will be on statewide ballots, you know, of course, like I'm reporting for Georgia and we've got some big races coming up in 2022. I think they're studying Youngkin to see how do you do that? How do you 
Make sure that you stay aligned with Trump enough that he remains on your side so that his people remain on your side, but not so aligned with Trump that you can't kind of shake that Trump sheen when it comes time to try to appeal in a general election. And to me, the polls that show the race so tight shows that in a way, Youngkin's has been able to do that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think Youngkin has been at least somewhat successful in kind of having a foot in, in both camps. And I think it it shows that there are sort of swing voters who are differentiating between Trump and potential Republican candidates, including Youngkin. You know, there's this poll that showed that about half of respondents thought of Trump as a as a major factor in how they were going to vote, basically the same amount as said the same for Biden, which is pretty crazy considering Biden is the sitting president and Trump is nothing right now. So I think Youngkin, at least so far, has has walked that line pretty well from his point of view. Yeah, our former colleague Harry Enten kind of dove right at this debate or this idea in some sense. He wrote a recent piece for CNN titled, If Democrats Win Virginia, They Should Thank Donald Trump. Do you think that's an accurate view? I guess in the sense that if it weren't for Donald Trump's unpopularity in the state and still playing a role in people's minds, that it seems like Yunkin would be winning this race. I think it's a... By the way, shout out to Harry. I love you, Harry. Um, I think it's uh, <laughs> I think it's a useful shorthand to understand an important dynamic going on, which is to say Trump is unpopular overall, and particularly with left-leaning voters. And Youngkin, to some extent, one is associated with Trump, and two is associating himself with Trump. Right? He's been ambiguous about the 2020 election. He showed up at that at Stop the Steal event, which he then claimed he didn't know was to stop stop the steal event. But I think it's kind of broader than that. I, I would frame it more as how much has partisanship and polarization just kind of froze the electorate in place? You know, how many how many Democratic leaning voters are going to vote for Yunkin? I think the answer is not many. But I think the answer also is maybe enough that that Yunkin can win. Well, independence, too. Because I think Biden would have would have won independence by a significant clip in Virginia. Sure, independence, but including independents who who typically vote Democrat. But all independents, sure. But I get my my point. The reason I'm sort of pushing back a little bit on the wider framing than just Trump is one question I think we have going into this, for example, is in a left leaning state like Virginia, where the majority of voters support vaccine, support vaccine mandate, support, you know, science-based COVID responses, how much will Youngkin's stances on COVID, which are much more aligned with Republicans generally, much more, frankly, don't take the pandemic as seriously, how much does that hurt Youngkin? That's connected to Trump in, in the sense that Trump basically set the Republican platform re-COVID, but it's not about Trump specifically or narrowly. I was going to say when I read that article, it's like you could also make the opposite argument that if Democrats lose, you can thank Donald Trump, you know, because that means Youngkin was able to keep Trump's coalition on his side and build upon it, you know, so Youngkin can't win without Donald Trump. Or 
Donald Trump could destroy Youngkin's chances if he wanted to, I guess is maybe another way of putting it, um, because he still needs those Republican voters to support him in the general election. So I, I think to Micah's point, whoever wins or loses, Trump won't be the the one factor, and he may not even be the deciding factor, because at the end of the day, this is still a race about issues beyond just the former president. Yeah, I, I think that's what I struggle the most with this question is like, we want it to be kind of this convenient through line from all these elections, like, okay, it's like, it's still because Trump is or isn't on the ballot. And how are Republicans like remaking themselves now in the party of Trump? And what does that do for voters and races? And I think in this race in particular, I, I'm kind of curious to see to what extent um COVID is the most important factor for voters. Like we definitely saw that that was the case in California, but I would argue we were at a different point in that trajectory. You know, now in Virginia, when you ask voters like what the top issue is, they say the economy, you see Youngkin get better ratings on that. However, like in terms of the issues, the best that McAuliffe does is on COVID. So if that is something that voters are still really worried about, they want say like a mandate in the workplace, like does that lead them to vote for McAuliffe. I, I do think Trump will be a factor, right? I, I think the polling shows that's clear, but but so will a lot of other things. I think the better way to put it, as as we've all been getting at, is to what extent will this race be nationalized? The more it's nationalized, the better for McAuliffe, right? Because because Virginia is a is a kind of a light blue state, and and races in general, House, Senate, gubernatorial races have all become more nationalized more closely correlated with the presidential vote in recent decades. But that nationalization process is the least strong um, in gubernatorial races. So I think there's still enough room there for for Youngkin to have a chance. The question is, how much room? All right. Well, we will be covering that race night of on our live blog. So folks should tune in then. Of course, we will also check back in on this race the day before Election Day, which will be next week. But let's move on to New Jersey. So we have not seen the same level of polling out of New Jersey that we've seen out of Virginia, just because it's not expected to be as close. But a new Emerson College poll shows Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy leading Republican challenger Jack Cittarelli by six points. And that lead falls to four points when you assign respondents who say they're leaning one way or another. So that's to say that amongst leaners, Jack Cittarelli has the advantage. So six points versus four points is the difference between a pretty rare polling error and a not so rare polling error and could give us some sense of truly how competitive this election is. So one, maybe a mini good use of polling, bad use of polling here. Which number is the better indicator? Do you assign leaners and say that this, you know, Emerson College poll points to this being a four point race or not? I think generally it's good practice to assign leaners. If you look back at, at polling historically, including the leaners gets you kind of results closer to the eventual outcome than not including the leaners. When when we enter polls in our database to include in a forecast, for example, we, we always include leaners. Um, this race, it, you know, <laughs> I think it's competitive. There has been barely any polling the polls that we do have most recently show um, the Democrat up in, in the mid-single digits. And it's an environment where we would expect Republicans to overperform. So, you know, if, if you're going into this race just thinking, hey, this is New Jersey, the Democrat's going to win, 
no problem. I think this, you know, these are all the conditions where, a, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by a surprise, right? Not that much polling, environments that favor the Republican, sort of like this race getting attention at the last minute. I don't know. I I would call that. I would I would start by thinking of this race as a competitive race. I mean, I trust 538 and I trust the polling that you guys trust. <laughs> so, I mean, I think to me, I guess I was surprised it was, you know, a 6% race or even more so a 4% race is closer than I would have guessed for New Jersey. Yeah, Chris Christie, but initially Chris Christie was seen as this moderate different type of Republican that could become governor of a blue state. And so he was seen as a moderate exception to the rule. Yeah, one little fact I hadn't known was that if Murphy wins re-election, he'll be the first to do it since I believe the 1970s as a Democrat, which is kind of wild given what we know about how New Jersey votes, at least in presidential elections. But I think as Tia was getting with Chris Christie, um, you know, New Jersey has elected a Republican governor before, similar to Maryland, right? Um, and Massachusetts in the sense of kind of these Northeastern states having more of a tradition on focusing on more moderate Republicans. And I think, you know, that is important important to kind of think about Chitterelli. He won the GOP primary by not being as Trumpian as some of the other candidates he was up against. So I know we just had that whole section talking about the Virginia race and kind of what role is Trump playing on the ballot. He did play a role in the ballot in the primary here and perhaps to four more independent voters, you know, the top issue, according to one of the Emerson polls that came out recently in the race is taxes and people are worried about the economy. And that was overwhelmingly the top issue among Republicans. Um, but it was also, you know, 51% of um, Democrats as well were concerned about taxes, which, you know, if that's kind of the top issues that's bubbling up, historically, at least Republicans have generally done really well on that issue, you know, is that something that plays um, to Chitterelli's advantage here in, in New Jersey? I, d I do think one thing that's become more clear in the polling, and this applies in New Jersey, but is true nationally, is the extent to which fears about the economy really popped up as an issue, I think, as the Delta variant surged. And as we got those reports about inflation. I, I think I've sort of become more convinced that the chief explanation for why as COVID case, cases have declined and as Afghanistan has faded from the news, Biden's approval numbers have not bounced back. If anything, they've, they've gotten a little worse. It seems like there's this economic pessimism um, that has taken hold in the electorate. And in New Jersey, I think that could be what makes this, makes this race competitive, kind of as Sarah was saying, taxes in New Jersey are always like a big issue because like property taxes are out of control there. But the Republican candidate, you know, I was looking at one poll of his favorables, for example, and it was like 40% favorable, 40% unfavorable, and the rest have, have no opinion or are not sure, basically. And that's kind of what you need to win as a Republican in a blue state is for lots of people not to really have that strong uh, feeling on you, right? And to sort of more be a, a generic Republican, somewhat of a cipher. All right. Well, as with Virginia, we will watch what happens there. Let's move on and talk about the Build Back Better plan. But first, you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Over the weekend, Democrats tried to finalize their Build Back Better plan in meetings between Biden leadership and Senator Joe Manchin in Wilmington, Delaware. As the final details potentially take shape, we're going to focus on how Americans feel about the provisions that are and aren't making it into the plan. And we're going to do that by playing a game. So I'm going to name a provision or aspect that Democrats are considering including in the bill, and you all are going to have to guess what Americans think about it according to the polling. So before we get to that, though, I just want to lay out a little background on where things stand. Tia, this is your domain. Congress has been somewhat chaotic in recent weeks. Where do Democrats stand now on pulling this all together? The honest answer is we don't know. But um, no, um, I think that... Let's move on. (laughs) So President Biden is headed on an international trip Part of the mission of this trip is to talk about climate change at this international summit. So he would like to at least be able to go to this summit with a clear picture of what Congress is going to do when it comes to addressing climate change in America, which is part of that currently $3.5 trillion social spending and climate change bill. We know it's coming down to the $1.8 trillion range. And so there is a lot of incentive on Democrats' side to at least get a framework of what is going to be in that bill so that Biden knows what he, because it's going to be hard for him to pressure other countries to address climate change if he can't say what America, his own country, is doing. So there's an incentive for them to figure it out this week. There also is an incentive because we know that if they don't figure out this bigger social spending and climate change package that will make progressives in the house very opposed to passing the 1.2 trillion dollar hard infrastructure package which is roads bridges transit and funding for surface transportation expires october 31st so they need the bigger package to come together so they can also pass infrastructure by the end of this month and not let surface transportation funding run out because that would mean furloughs and things like that. So there's a lot of incentive to get it done, but it has been moving very slowly now. And so that short time frame is still very ambitious. What does it seem like the remaining sticking points are as far as they have been made public? Well, so many, um, you know, So Joe Manchin, he comes from West Virginia, which is a coal state. So he's been very skeptical, oppositional to some of the climate change provisions. Kristen Sinema from Arizona has been oppositional to a lot, but particularly the way Democrats wanted to tax wealthy Americans and businesses to pay for the package. So now they're having to completely redo 
the tax proposals in the bill. And it's looking like there's just going to be a tax on the ultra wealthy as opposed to taxes on just rich people, if you will. And and possibly no tax increases on businesses. And then you have things like every day we'll hear about rank and file members pinning letters saying, please don't touch this part of the bill that we really want. And so some are pushing for like prescription drug pricing initiatives, but Big Pharma is opposed and cinema has been opposed to that. And then we have Medicare and should dental vision and hearing be covered. And then some people are saying that's too costly. In Georgia, Medicaid expansion is something our Democratic members really want because Georgia is among the conservative states that have not expanded Medicaid. But now there are questions of would that be a longer term program that gets added or very short term as as little as one year or maybe three years. So and there's just so much push and pull because every member has priorities they want to see in the bill. And we know everything is not going to make it in. Bernie Sanders' two-year free community college is already kind of one of the provisions that we think are out completely, for example. As some of the final debate plays out, let's talk about the the pieces that may make it in and may not. This is going to be something of a competition between the three of you. I'm going to ask you about the polling on particular provisions. Whoever gets closest will get a point. There are no prices right rules, so you can go over if you like. Are you guys all ready for this? Yeah. I was born ready. I think so. All right, here we go. First off, just to give an overall sense of how well-informed Americans are on this. So according to a recent CBS YouGov poll, how many Americans say they know a lot of the specifics of the bill? And we will rotate through who begins. For this, uh, Tia, we'll begin with you. 20%. 20%. Micah? I'll say 37%. All right. Sarah? 27%. Tia, you win it. Only 10% of Americans said they know a lot of the specifics of the bill. I don't know why I should be celebrating that. That's terrible. We've got to do a better job. Oh, a lot. But yeah, the a lot is what... (laughs) We do have to do a better job. The a lot is what stuck with me, you know. You got to be really plugged in because it's... It's been changing and it's it's complicated stuff in a way that there's a lot to learn about the bill. There's a lot in it, so there's a lot to consume. I'm not sure I know a lot about what's in this bill. (laughs) And so I should say 29% of Americans say they don't know what's in it at all. 33% said they have a general sense and know some specifics. So there was a range there. But in terms of people who know a lot, it was only 10%. So that's one point for Tia. Michael, you're going to kick us off for this next one. What percentage of Americans say they support federal funding to lower Medicare prescription drug prices? Can you repeat the question, please? (laughs) I will tell you exactly how the question was phrased. Would you support or oppose federal funding for the following? One of the things included, lowering Medicare prescription drug prices. I'm going to say 87%. 87%, Sarah? 85%. 85%, Tia? 65%. All right, Micah's got it. It is 88% of Americans, just one percentage point away. In the polling that CBS News and YouGov did, where they asked a whole bunch of different things about this Build Back Better Act, that was the highest support of any of the provisions. This is this is not to interrupt the game, but I think this is part of why cinema um, has gotten a bit more elbows thrown at her than Mansion. In addition to the just kind of lack of clarity 
on what she's opposed in this bill and what she would support. The fact that she's coming out against literally the most popular part of this legislation, I think is why she's come in for more criticism, both from her colleagues and, and from the media. As well as just because the appearance of having, you know, a cozy relationship with Big Pharma and the fundraising and things coupled with that, you know, I think that makes it also just kind of the optics surrounding her opposition to that provision aren't great for her. A cynical person, you know, might think that uh, her campaign donations are influencing how how she's voting. But we're not cynical here, are we? All right. So it is one point for Tia, one point for Micah. Sarah, this is your opportunity. You're also <laughs> okay. going to kick us off here. So according to that same CBS News YouGov poll, how many Americans support universal pre-K for children? 68%. All right. 68%. Tia? I'm going to stick with 65%. Micah? I vaguely remember this being one of the lower policies in terms of how much support it got. So I'm going to go with 51%, maybe lower than that. Okay, Sarah, you got it. it 67% of Americans say they support universal pre-K for children. You're both very close, Tia and Sarah, sandwiched right in between 65 and 68. But that means... I don't know if you've coordinated this or something behind my back, but that means, Tia, you got a point. Micah, you got a point. And Sarah, you got a point. But uh, yeah, it's it's reasonably well supported. And it looks like it's going to remain in the final iteration of the bill. With some debate over, you know, there's universal pre-K and, and then funding for childcare that would come before pre-K. Um, and there's been some debate over whether that childcare portion will be included. I think that's still being debated. But you are, okay, you're in a three-way tie, and let's see if we can break this. According to a Morning Consult Politico poll from this month, how many Americans think that the extended child tax credits set to expire next year should be made permanent? Tia, we're back to you. I'm going to say extended child tax credit permanent, 72%. 72%. Micah? I'm going to go with... 73%. 73%. 73 Okay, Sarah? I think this is like 52%. This was lower, if I remember right, for American support. I think. We'll see. We'll see. Sarah, yeah. you got it. That is correct. Okay. But it's okay. even lower than you thought. Is it? Okay. 35% of Americans say wow. at least probably the expanded child tax credit set okay. to expire next year should be made permanent, while 52% said they should probably not be extended. Why is that? So I was doing some research on this over the weekend, not to cheat and get poll numbers, but to get a general <laughs> sense of what the American public thought. And I was surprised by that too. I hadn't realized though that this program has been in place since the 90s. What was at stake was the extensions that Democrats made as part of the coronavirus package passed earlier this year. And so that I think American, because like, just because if they don't extend it, it's not going to go away. It's just like, should it be at the same level it's been? And I think maybe some voters are kind of weighing, well, do we still need stimulus funding in some way or manner? That's that's my read on it. I also think that because right now the way the the tax credit was also altered so that parents get a check every month. And I think that anything that is perceived as welfare for poor people, for people of color, tends to naturally be less popular. Now, 
Again, that's a perception because we know that all types of families are receiving the child tax credit in that white families and things like that. But unfortunately, the stereotypes about receiving a check from the government every month are rooted in, you know, a little bit of um, classism and a lot of racism. And I would, again, I'm, I don't have any insight, but my gut tells me that's one of the reasons why it's among the least popular. Which what I which perfectly answers the sort of question that was bubbling in my head, which it which is like why would this be low relative to something like universal pre K, but as Tia was just getting at universal pre K, universal is in the name, um, where something you know where where you have these kind of racist and it's also a service versus cash. Well, I guess part of what I'm driving at is I'm not sure Americans are so in the weeds on this stuff that. You know, like I hear you, Sarah, on, you know, do we need this sort of elevated level of stimulus versus the baseline because of COVID, COVID's getting better. I'm not sure they're that in the weeds on it. You know, I think more likely, I mean, th- that might be playing some role, but more like a bigger, a bigger role, I think, is is what Tia's driving at, which is just, you know, what programs, you know, are associated with you know, helping black people, helping Hispanic people, and which are not. And in the former, you just get less support. No, 100%. I mean, it's why Medicare is always more popular than Medicaid. Yeah. I think Tia hit it on the nail. So just to just to clarify exactly how the polling breaks down here, this is the question. As you may know, the expanded child tax credit payments are set to expire next year. Do you think the payments should be made permanent? Yes, definitely 18%. Yes, probably 17%. No, probably not, 18%. No, definitely not, 34%. Don't know slash no opinion, 13%. In any case, let's move on. So it is now one Tia, one Micah, two Sarah. Sarah making the comeback. Trying. All for it. Okay. What percentage of Americans support federal funding for Medicare coverage for dental, eye, and hearing? 63%. 63%. Sarah? No, it's it's seniors. So this has got to be like 82% or higher. All right, 82%. Or is that your is that your final answer, Sarah? That's my final <laughs> answer. Okay. Tia? I'm going to say 80. 80. Okay. It is 84%. So Sarah, you got another point. <laughs> another another nail biter with Sarah's Tia. getting it. This this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm you know, it is unfair. That Tia and Sarah, you know, actually are are well versed in these subjects, um, and I'm not. I think I'm at a disadvantage here. It's just it's the senior vote. That was another big thing that I took away from kind of like reading up on some of it this weekend. Is like that whole shtick in Veep where it's like Jonah's uncle controls like the older <laughs> citizens in New Hampshire. It's like. Turns out when you try to like build programs that will um, help older people, those are really popular. Um, so I had a suspicion that this one would be, though I know like dental might be on the chopping block because it's really costly um, to include. Yeah, so there's some debate over how much of this will end up in the final bill. But from what I understand, they most recently have considered a dental voucher as opposed to yeah. covering yeah. all of dental because, as you mentioned, it would be so expensive. Also, in this poll, I do have crosstabs for this one. 74% of Republicans and 83% of independents supported this. That's how you get as high as 84% overall. So now it is, Sarah, you have three points. Micah, you have one. Tia, you have one. Tia, let's let's team up to overtake Sarah. 
T and I are forming an alliance. Oh. Here is a is a kind of uh, tricky one, and I think Sarah, you're going to kick us off for this. So, a recent Vox Data for Progress poll asked Americans about the climate provisions in the bill, specifically asking. The federal government is considering a new clean electricity performance program. Utility companies that meet certain clean energy performance goals would be given incentives from the government, while those that fail to comply will be required to pay a penalty. Would you support or oppose this clean electricity performance program? What percentage of Americans said they would support this clean electricity performance program? Climate, I think, is generally pretty low overall, because as you were getting at with like the dental coverage, that was much higher, 80% because Republicans were on board. So I think 52%, that's low. 52% to you? I'm going back to, I'm going to say 62. 62. All right, Micah? You know, I actually edited a piece about public opinion uh, around climate. Um, What was Sarah's guess again? 52. I don't think it's lower than that. I th- I'll say 53%. Tia, you have won it. It is 63%. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, Tia. Micah and Tia now have three points to Sarah's three <laughs> points. <laughs> team, team Micah, team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it is relatively high compared to a 50-50 baseline, although it looks like this is not going to be a part of the final bill because of opposition from Senator Joe Manchin. I think they're looking for other ways to try to impose regulations on pollution and carbon emissions, but it sounds like this is not going to make it in. So we're now at Sarah 3, Tia 2, Micah 1. And we are starting with you, Tia. What percentage of Americans think that companies should offer both mothers and fathers paid parental leave? I'm going to say 70%. 70 percent. 70%. 70%. Micah? 71%. Mm, Sarah? Yeah, no, I definitely think it's in the 70%. Um, so we've got 70, 71, 72 Oh, that's messed up, Sarah. <laughs> well, you did um, that too. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have to ro- rotate through you guys. Tia. You win it, actually. It is 67% of Americans, according to a YouGov poll, say that companies should offer both mothers and fathers paid parental leave. 75% of women say this, and 62% of men say this. Team Tia and Micah, take the lead. (laughs) The alliance is off. I don't need you anymore. (laughs) So it is Tia and Sarah at three, Micah at one. And it looks like this program... But a scaled back version is likely going to make it into the Build Back Better Act. I think originally the proposal was 12 weeks of paid family leave, and the current proposal is four weeks of paid family leave. And they may, might also alter who's eligible, because at first they were wanting to include like gig workers and things like that. So the 12 and the four week is in the discussion, but I think also what types of workers could be eligible is also part of the discussion. Good to know. So moving on, Micah, I think you are going to kick us off for this one. What percentage of Americans favor making tuition at public colleges and universities free for all American students? I have a question before Micah answers. Go for it. Is this about public colleges, period, or community colleges, two years? 
This is about all public colleges and universities. Okay. So this would be an even more ambitious program than what Sanders and Biden were originally interested in, which was, I think, two years of free community college, which looks like it's not, as you said, Tia, going to make it into this. I am going to say 48%. 64%. What? 64%. I think it's like middle, middling high. And I was wrong on climate change. So so we'll see. I say 50%. 50%. Sarah wins it. So it's 63% oh. of Americans. Wow. At least somewhat support free tuition at public colleges and universities. There are strong partisan differences here. So 63% of Republicans or Republican-leaning uh, voters opposed to making college tuition free, while 85% of Democrats favor it. The reason I thought the 60s was too high is I remember seeing polling that showed support for free community college. So as we were talking about a, like a more narrow range in the low 60s. So I don't know, maybe people aren't differentiating between the scope there. I was surprised that that ended up on the cutting room floor, just given like how popular it was. Did you have any like special insight, Tia, covering this on like why that part of the bill? They're just like, no, we're not going to include it all. I think it's expensive, number one. And I also think it's not as universally, you know, like Galen said, there's that partisan divide on this particular one. So I think it was just the among the easier ones for Democrats to say, we'll have to get at it in another way at another time. And it looks like they're going to try to get at it in another way. And the way that they're going to do that is the way that was favored by private colleges and universities, which is to expand Pell Grants. Essentially, there were a lot of four-year institutions that were saying, hey, you're going to make community college free. That's not good for us. We want some of those dollars spent boosting the four-year colleges and whatever. And so by boosting Pell Grants, that means that those can be used at community colleges or four-year universities, which is what those universities were lobbying for. All right, next question, which starts with, where were we? I think we're starting with Sarah this time, right? So it's Sarah 4, Tia 3, Micah 1. Tia, should we reform the alliance? No, thank you. You're not pulling your weight. (laughs) Sarah, do you want my lonely point? Do you want to form an alliance? Hold Tia off? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay. I'm okay. All right. So now let's talk about how much support there is overall. So when it is phrased as such, I'm interested how many, what percentage of Americans support this? The Build Back Better plan is a $3.5 trillion proposal that would expand Medicare benefits to include vision, hearing, and dental care, make long-term care for seniors and people with disabilities, healthcare, and childcare more affordable, extend tax cuts for families with children, and create clean energy jobs. Do you support or oppose the Build Back Better plan? What percentage of Americans support it? I, it's been getting like less popular over time, just as as it's fifty four percent. Fifty four percent. Okay, Tia. Seventy percent. Seventy percent. Micah. Fifty three percent. It goes to Tia. So, Tia, you have four <laughs> points now. Sarah, you this have four points. Like Micah, you still have one point. Kind of embarrassing. <laughs> for real, it was a joke before. Now it's getting real. Jeez. Okay, this builds on that last question. So the last question was from an October Vox Data for Progress poll. When they asked that exact same question a second time, but they added the line for describing how the bill was going to get paid for. So 
they added like basically comma, a proposal that is paid for by raising taxes on the wealthy and large corporations. What percentage of Americans said they supported it? T, I think we start with you. 66%. Yeah, I was going to say it probably got more popular, right? Um, 70%. 70%? Sarah? Yeah, my guess is it got more popular too. Because it's like the, the questions on like the corporate tax rate, that's all popular. Uh, 65%. And it goes to Tia. So it was 67%. It increased the popularity by three percentage points. So now it is five Tia, one Micah, four Sarah. We just got a couple more questions here. We're going to wrap up with some of a conversation about how it's going to get paid for and maybe some of the Republican attacks. So, Micah, we're starting with you on this one. What percentage of Americans supported expanding IRS enforcement for taxes owed? This is one of the provisions that seems like it's going to, at this point, make it into this bill for you know raising revenue to pay for the programs. Um expanding irs enforcement for taxes owed I, I you know honestly i feel like i should bow out of this game like at what point does this do <laughs> we believe in you come on at get one point more point Michael. you got serious long-lasting harm to my career um <laughs> i will say see this is tricky because it's like i think people support making people pay their fair share but nobody loves the irs right um, right. So I, I don't yeah. know about this one. I'm going to split the difference. 50%. 50%. Okay. Sarah? 57%. 57%. Tia? 65%. 65%. Okay, this goes to Sarah. Oh. 58%. Oh, wow. <laughs> you close. guys are too good at this game. <laughs> I got within eight percentage points. That should be close <laughs> enough. <laughs> Give you a gold star. <laughs> that was a because we were changing tack here. It was hard to go first on that one. I love how everyone's now like trying to be gentle with me. It's like it's okay, Micah. <laughs> so now we have to break the tie. We have Tia five, Sarah five, okay. Micah one. Who wants the alliance? <laughs> That's one way to break the tie. <laughs> so. According to a no-labels poll conducted last month, how many Americans are concerned about the impact of a total of $4.7 trillion in spending on runaway inflation? And the $4.7 trillion is the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package with the initially proposed $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan. Uh, What percentage of Americans say they are concerned about the impact of that spending on runaway inflation? Seems like a little bit of a leading question here. No labels definitely has an, yeah. a, a point of view on this, for sure. Okay, so if we don't like that poll, I have a CBS poll okay. on whether the Biden administration is putting the right amount of focus on inflation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's you, go you like that, that one better? Yeah. We won't make the no labels poll part of the exercise, but does anyone have a guess as to where the public landed on that? The, the question was, are you worried about the price tag, basically, right? It was like, are you worried about runaway inflation if Congress spends that much money? Are you worried spending trillions and trillions of dollars will increase very scary runaway inflation? That was sort of right. the question. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would if we're just, you know, playing just, you know, um, I would say like 60 yeah. percent the way it was worded. I would, too. Yeah. OK, I'll say 
57%. Michael Ski. It was 74%. Oh, wow. 74. It shows how malleable people are. The power of a push poll. Okay, so let's ask the more righteous CBS News poll question. We're still at 551. This is the tiebreaker. Whoever gets this one wins. Unless it's you, Micah, then I guess we'll still be tied. Okay. No, this, <laughs> this, I forgot to note as managing editor, this question is worth 10 points. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's a decision I made. Uh, what percentage of Americans think the Biden administration is putting the right amount of focus on inflation? 42%. Fifty-two 52%. 46%. Sarah, you got it. It is only 33% according to a CBS News poll from this month, while 60% think that not enough focus is being put on inflation. And according to the same survey, a majority of Americans, 66%, believe that the inflation is caused by U.S. government policy. But the reason for the inflation that received the highest percentage was supply and manufacturing issues after the pandemic, and that was 79%. So I will say, this does go back to what we were talking about earlier, where relative to where we were two weeks ago, I do think that concern about the economy and inflation and anxiety there is playing more of a role in Biden's slump than we thought, um, or than I thought, I should say, which is interesting. Yeah. No, I was gonna say we were talking about the no labels poll, because like, it is a partisan actor. But you know, and I realize the questions aren't phrased the same way. Well, they they try to their their whole branding is that they're not a partisan. actor. But yes, they're like a business kind of very aligned with like business. Right, but also like a pack contributing money, like anyhow, I think it's interesting, though, that the CBS YouGov poll roughly matches that Um, different way to phrase the question, definitely not as um, leading either, but still suggests that, yeah, there's a lot of concern around this. I think that no labels question, leading as it is, is sort of pushing on an open door, so to speak, just in terms of people's fears. It also goes to remember on a previous podcast, Galen, we were talking about the extent to which the media plays a role in shaping the narrative and in kind of like interpreting events for the public. The extent to which the the Democrats spending plan is, you know, reported as a jobs plan, an economic plan, a social policies plan, like varies and and I think has an outsized impact on on how it's all interpreted. And I think this is a great a great example of why. Yeah. And I mean also how this gets argued in the court of public opinion next year mm-hmm. in the run up to the midterms. Of course, political ads use the argument that the public is most likely to accept. And so I think we'll probably see this framing more and more. And this maybe maybe gives us some sense of the vulnerabilities Democrats face there. I mean, that said, though, you did highlight that the top reason why they thought it was happening was supply chain issues. So on the one hand, you know, like if those issues of the pandemic are rectified soon, maybe concern around inflation won't be what it what it is currently. But on that same that same note, if they pass this bill with new spending, that's just going to give those who believe government spending is out of control. That's a main line Mitch McConnell has said thus far. So I think it's going to increase that focus. And that's a whole different topic about educating people on really where federal spending goes to. And even if you expand these social programs, 
that's not the biggest chunk a lot. You know, the, the stuff that people tend to like, military spending, Medicare, that's where your money's going to. But it still is not going to keep, you know, the political attacks about around this spending. If if Democrats eventually pass both of these bills, I'm going to be really interested to see like how the media reports it. Because like there was a there was an article on the front page of the New York Times today or yesterday, which was you know the headline was like Biden sees that compromise involves making sacrifices, which I'm pretty sure like Biden knew you know because that's the definition of compromise. But will the you know if if they eventually pass something, will it be reported as Biden administration succeeds passes far-reaching legislation, or will it be reported as Biden administration gets only a little bit of what it wanted and stumbles across the finish line, you know, and then the, the inflation debate plays sort of into a weird way in those different framings, because I think Republicans will be saying Democrats are spending all this money, which in a weird way aligns with the framing the Biden administration wants because they want this to be seen as a big, a big policy push. Right. All right. Well, we will be here on this podcast watching all of that play out. So until then, thank you, Tia, Micah, and Sarah. And congratulations, Sarah. Yes, I was gonna say, Sarah. What was Micah's final score again? Oh. <laughs> Micah, your trophy's in the mail, Micah. You did great, Micah. Good job. Good effort. Tia. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Micah-Tia alliance got six points and Sarah got six points. There we go. Tia, there you we go. Come on, Micah. I'll let you... I'll let you Tia, share. you should have kept the alliance together. The fact that I was not pulling my weight at all was, you know, a totally reasonable reason to throw me overboard. But still. Yeah, I'll let you join. <laughs> Team Micah T's back on. <laughs> all right. Let's leave it there. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.